0: Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your presence here right now. Your word says that where two or more are gathered in your name. There you are in the midst. And if we as we've been worshiping your Son Jesus and exalting him for what he has done for us and secured for us on the cross, and that by his resurrection, we too will have new life in his name. I ask you, Father, that as we search your scriptures, uh, Lord, I just pray. Give us an excitement about your grace tonight. Give us an excitement about who you are, the sovereign, omnipotent, powerful, yet loving and compassionate and God that is full of grace. And I just ask you, Lord, speak to us through your scriptures. We wanna have a clear understanding. This is perhaps one of the toughest topics that we are gonna look at and we need your grace right now. We need your spirit to guide us into truth that as we discover this truth, Lord, I believe that, that the more on target we are with that truth, the more it's going to mean to us. So, Father, we just ask you have your way and teach us by your Spirit. And I pray, God, for every single one of us, give us a takeaway. Give us something that as we go home, meditating on your love and your grace, I ask, God, uh, may we plumb the depths of it more and more. We, we surrender our hearts to you, God. You be our teacher. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to start off with just something kind of silly here. Um, And it says here for the terminologically impaired are some handy definitions of commonly used computer terms for church life. Are you ready? Shareware. A common communion chalice. Hardware. Hardware. The ugly necktie your kids gave you last Father's Day. Okay. Download. To dump unpleasant tasks on the youth pastor. Download. Hard drive. A 12-hour bus trip to junior high camp. Co-processor. When your wife edits your sermons. This, this, this is, sorry, this is in the pastor to pastor section, so they threw that one in there. Modem. What you did to the flowers Mrs. Grinch planted in front of the church. <laughs> Modem. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Database. Old Mrs. Weemster. Where do they come up with these names, you know? Weimster. Old Mrs. Weemster, who remembers the names and shortcomings of every pastor in the 120 year history of your church. Oh, PC. PC stands for please come. It's an eschatological plea by those who can't find their sermon notes on the computer when it's time to print them Sunday morning. Please come. Eschatological. And tar- yeah, okay. Online. Where your job will be when you step up to the pulpit with nothing to say. <laughs> And then lastly, cyberspace, where people go when we preach on stuff like election and foreknowledge. Okay, not really. It actually used the term superlapsarianism, but I'm not going to get into that. That's not going to be necessary for today. It does have to do with our topic tonight, but we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the, the heart and soul of this concept of election. Did somebody have their hand raised? Yes. Have you ever stepped up today? The- and not had anything to say? No. <laughs> oh, wow. That is so contrary to my nature. I would be absolutely terrified if I had no notes. But I think there was one time in which that happened. Yeah. One in
1: 20 years.
0: Everyone loved it. The sermon was 15 minutes and we went home. Just kidding. No, for for me, it probably went something like this. Okay, I forgot my sermon notes. It's probably going to be 15 minutes and it was an hour and 15 minutes. That's probably what happened. You don't have to agree with me now. Okay. Oh, great. No, here we go. I, I need to admit to you guys that tonight is a very challenging subject. Um, there are two basic ways to view election. And we're going to be talking about both of them. And you're going to find out that I lean far more heavily towards one side than the other. There's the Calvinist perspective and the Arminian perspective. Do I need to write those two terms up? Calvinist and Arminian. Not Armenian. That's someone who lives in Armenia, but Arminian, okay? So this is Calvinist and Armenian. okay? I had to check my spell in there for a moment, make sure I got it.
1: I'm
0: going to get to those in, in just a moment, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This subject of election, properly understood, is... Tends to kick the feet out from under us. It super emphasizes the grace of God. And there's going to be a tendency on our part to want to reject it. Naturally. In man. I'm just letting you know that right now. You probably already know where I'm going to come from. Um, But we need to realize that regardless of how we feel about any doctrine like hell... If the Bible teaches it, we believe it. Now, you may remember some time ago, I drew a diagram up here. Let me see if this is something. And to, for, to, we, this typically is God's sovereignty over here, man's responsibility tonight. Um, I'm going to put over here election. And over here, I'm going to put faith. Let me move that down just a bit. And as we are trying to think through this idea of, from God's perspective, his responsibility in this, and then faith, man's responsibility in this whole idea of salvation, there is, uh, there's, because of who we are in, lim- in our limited knowledge, we are going to be able to understand only so much. Whether you're a Calvinist or whether you're an Arminian, you're only going to understand so much. And tonight, I want us to realize that we need, whether we, whichever camp that we come from, we need to approach this topic with tremendous humility. And it's because even within the Calvinist camp, I am going to say something bold like this. They truly do not fully understand it. They don't. Um, and within the Arminian camp, I'm going to say they truly do not understand it. I, can't, I would venture to say that there's no one in this room. And if you are happen to listen online, you do not understand it. We can understand it to a degree. And the degree to which we understand it is only the degree to which it is revealed in the scriptures. There is going to be mystery in this, and we're going to have to allow the mystery to remain. The problem, though, is going to come when someone who is not a believer in Jesus says, explain to me election and faith, and how is that possible? It's like them coming to you and saying, explain hell." and they still cannot understand hell is final. Punishment within man, I mean, how is that like, how is that final? Um, Doesn't God give you a second chance? I mean, hell, there is no second chance. just doesn't seem like a loving God would do this, etc., etc., etc. And the truth is, we can explain it to a degree, but the bottom line is, we do not have to explain something like hell or something like election to the degree that the unbeliever is satisfied. We don't have to do that. We have to take the word of God and say, God, this is what your word says. Whether I completely understand it, whether it makes sense, whether it just really rubs me the wrong way or not, it doesn't matter. There's a reason why doctrines, certain doctrines are in the word. And there's a reason why, such as in the realm of demonology, only a certain amount is revealed to us in the Word of God. We have to be ever so careful if we're going to go beyond that. Okay? And a lot of books are out there today. They're based on a little bit of Scripture and a lot of experience. And you just have to say, wait a second, I'm willing to embrace what Scripture teaches, but beyond that, I'm going to say, let's, let, let's wait. Let's hold the horses here. We can only go so far as Scripture teaches, okay? But here, I'm going to put that this line right here represents the extent of man's mind. So I'm going to put mind of man up to that far. Here is the mind of God and its vast, incomprehensible, infinite... And it well, I, I probably shouldn't do it that way. It, I probably should do it that way. It goes. It is infinite. And this concept of election and faith makes sense in the mind of God, but here we see a disparity in logic. And you will see this disparity, whether you're whichever camp you're going to come from. And we we can if we, we can step back and we can say this teaching is illogical. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It either downplays the sovereignty of God, as the Illuminati view, or tends to emphasize faith so or, or election so much that faith is obliterated. Now, those who would come from the hyper Calvinist per, uh, perspective would lean in that direction. I'm not going to say that's the Calvinist perspective, okay? I'm going to just let you know right now, this is the direction that I lean. Okay, you're going to see that. I think as we read scripture and we're fair with it, I think we're going to see that unfold for us. But as we talk about this now, um, this concept of election is that before the creation of the world, God chose some for him. He chose us in him. And we're going to unwrap that phrase here in a little bit. But he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God has a purpose in this concept of election. Okay? And so as we now step into this, and this concept of election or predestination or God's choosing is hotly debated... For this reason right here, okay, Um, I I would venture to say, and maybe I'm being unfair here, but I would venture to say that within the Arminian camp, and I'm going to explain what that is in a minute, there is a tendency to take this concept of election, and I should better say foreknowledge, and it tends to want to bend it this way to make sense. Okay, foreknowledge, faith, okay, the way I understand it that way, now that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just going to tell you that the way Scripture teaches it, it does present this disparity in in logic. And that is okay. We're going to find this in some doctrines because God is incomprehensible. He is beyond our comprehension. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Okay, so... There's certain things that scripture reveals and certain things that it does not. It will reveal quite a bit about election, foreknowledge, etc., but only to a degree. And my question to you is, are you willing to just let that sense of tension remain or are you going to try and resolve it completely? Um, And so I'm just tossing that out there. First, uh, Peter, chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Can someone read that out loud? Who'd like to do that? Mary, could you do that? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God
1: the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and and sprinkling, sprinkling by His blood. Okay.
0: Grace and peace to, sorry, my are all Grace and peace be yours and abundance. Great, you got through those names very well, actually. They're not easy to pronounce. What then, according to this verse, is the foundation of election? What word? Foreknowledge. knowledge. Okay, I'm to erase this now. Okay. Well, actually, no, not. I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna there. I'm gonna leave it up there, and you'll see why. Okay. It is foreknowledge. And so, election is rooted in God's foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We're going to come to that verse very shortly here. (laughs) We need to understand, then, what is God's foreknowledge. If we misunderstand God's foreknowledge, we will, for sure, misunderstand God's election or predestination. We're going to just misunderstand it. We want to be careful... Because when we see this logical disparity here, or what we'll call, and it it, it seems illogical, there's going to be a tendency to want us to redefine or or take scripture and make it say something that it does not, so that in our minds it makes sense. And I drew this dotted line over here to this point of faith to see, ah, in my mind, now it makes sense. Okay? We need to ask that fair question. What is God's foreknowledge? Very fair question. First, let's turn to Acts chapter two verse twenty three. Acts two twenty three. It says, this man, referring to Jesus, Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And yet, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Here, it would be proper to understand foreknowledge as we were discussing it in uh, God's providence, or God's sovereignty, some weeks, or actually some months ago, that it is God's knowledge of future events. Okay? What event is being talked about here? The crucifixion. God's set purpose, what he had planned all along, and his foreknowledge, his knowledge of future events, both of these are the foundation of God's plan for the cross. Okay. That plan was carried out perfectly as God had ordained. And in it, we must say that man, Judas, Pilate, etc., were fully responsible for their sin. Okay. We need to recognize this. This type of foreknowledge is a knowledge of future events. Okay? Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And 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 I'm going to read verse 29 because verse 29 is the main statement here and what follows is what backs up verse 29 verse 29 is uh since i was 14 has become my life verse and it says and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who are called, who have been called according to his purpose. We have been called according to his purpose. And God, as a result, he is going to be working all things together for our good, for your good. He's called you with a purpose, and everything in your life, everything is working together for your good. Now, how how can this happen what is the theological foundation for this so what we need what we what paul has set us up to expect is something that is truly rooted in the sovereign care love compassion mercy grace of god okay That's going to be its foundation because it's out of this compassion that God has orchestrated events to work together for our good. So then he goes on and he says this. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, we're going to look at those other theological um, words later, another time, not tonight. The two that I want us to look at is this concept of foreknowledge and uh, predestination. Let me ask you, did we come across the, the word foreknowledge here in this text? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm being very scrutinizing and literal. Do we come across the noun foreknowledge? No. No. no, we didn't. What did we come across? New. For new, which is a, it's a verb. And who is the object of this verb? Is it events? God for new events? Who is the object of this verb? People, you and me. We are the object of, the, of this verb. So here is my question. We read in Acts 2.23 that that type of foreknowledge is an understanding and knowledge of events. And yet now we're coming across the verb form. And this verb form isn't about events. It is not about that moment of your salvation. Because that is not what the text says. It is about you. God foreknew you. It doesn't say God foreknew your conversion. That's an event. It doesn't say that God foreknew that moment you would put faith in Jesus Christ. It says God foreknew you. Okay? So we have on one hand this word foreknowledge that can be understood to mean foreknowing events. And now we're coming across this verb... And it doesn't seem to fit this pattern. It's actually not foreknowing events, but foreknowing people. So now we have to be fair, and we have to be able to step back and ask this very important question, what does this verb foreknow, or even the noun foreknowledge, mean? Okay? Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. we're going to come across not the word foreknowledge, but the word knowledge. Okay, because this word knowledge um, that's used, and it's either epignosis or, or gnosis, both of those can mean a relational type of knowledge. It's just that Peter usually uses epignosis to describe that type of intimate knowledge. But it is not... Knowledge, such as knowing facts and events, as Peter lays out for us, it, it, say, it says in, in verse one, um, I'm sorry, is it verse one? Sorry, it's, it's verse two. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior. Continues on in verse 3, using this word again, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. What type of knowledge is this? Describe this type of knowledge to me. Is it knowing a theological creed? Is it knowing the Nicene Creed? Yes, no? No, no it's, not. it's not. It's not knowing a set of beliefs, though you, 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 you really need to understand that set of beliefs in order to have this type of knowledge. But this type of knowledge goes beyond that. What type of knowledge? Describe this knowledge. What is it? God's
1: knowledge. It's
0: relational. Okay, it's relational. It's knowledge of God. It's not knowledge of facts. It's knowledge of a person, and it is thereby relational. It is experiential. Okay? So this word knowledge can mean knowing facts and events, or it can also mean relational, um, experiential, and there is this idea of love that's mixed in with this. Okay? That's the word knowledge. Let's now look at the verb form. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. The word, by the way, for knowledge, is simply the word pro, which means before, and this word knowledge, gnosis, or gnosis. Okay? We, get, we transliterate it prognosis. Okay? All right. Now, I'm not saying that prognosis is a proper definite. So don't look up the English word prognosis and suddenly you understand what foreknowledge is. So, okay, um, don't do that. But Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about those who do not do the will of God. They, what do they do? They they prophesy in his name, they drive out demons in his name, and they perform miracles. Awesome religious, spiritual experiences, but there's one problem. 23. Then I, this is Jesus saying then I will plainly or, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers. Is Jesus saying that he forgot their name? No. Is Jesus saying that he forgot their birthday? No. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. What what doesn't he know about them? See, that's the wrong question. It's not that he didn't know something about them, it's that he n- did not know them. Well, how is that verb used? Uh, I never knew you. Okay, so he's talking about from the past to the present. I have not known you. I never knew you. This is relational, right? It's one thing to say, yeah, I know the president. Like, uh, you've met him one time, you shook his hand, and he told you a story about one day he played golf. And so you can say, yeah, I know the president. Well, really, you mean I know something about the president. You don't really mean I know the president. To know the president would require... A close relationship. Jesus saying, I, I do not have a close relationship with you. Okay? <clears throat> so the word knowledge can mean the knowledge of facts and events, or it can mean a knowledge that is intimate and relational and experiential. This word with the prefix pra or for knowledge carries with it the very same implications when we hit it in the when we hit this word in the verb form we have to realize he is not using it for new as in n- knowing events beforehand because it's a person that he knows and whenever you see this word n- know relating to a person it never means to know Facts about somebody, or their address, or phone number, or some detail about them—it is relational.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There is this sense of love in it. It is experiential, okay? But I'm gonna—I'm gonna light on that word relational, okay, Scott?
1: Yeah, I've got a question: Is um, what about the 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 pronoun?
0: I'm sorry, in Matthew 7? Uh, no. In, okay, in, in, Ma- in Romans 8. Um, okay. Those whom he foreknew. Yeah, in 829,
1: those. So the pronoun is those who are those. Foreknew is, is the verb, but the pronoun is those.
0: Okay. Who fair, are those? Right, fair enough question. In the context, we have to ask, what is the purpose of verse um, uh, 29 and 30? Um, or, or yeah, 29 and 30 and it is to support what he said in verse 28 those called according to his purpose who would those be? Are they unbelievers? No.
1: no.
0: They're believers they're followers of Jesus Christ they're disciples those in relation or relationship with God is that a fair yeah, I
1: just those? I just think it's like um, it, it's, it's just I, I'm, I'm not a Calvinist, by the way. I don't believe really in predestination because I just, I'm sorry you okay. I just don't. Um, but I think that is a that's an important point. Is the pronoun more than the verb about who the, the foreknowledge is uh, directed towards? Okay. Those. All it's
0: right. Kind of more so who would those be? Those,
1: you... those, those that you could say as a Calvinist, those that are predestined, predestined since the beginning of creation, or those or since God, or are those who have by choice, which is not Calvinist, come to salvation through okay. believing in Jesus
0: Christ. Right. I think it can be. All right. Um, I, let, me, let me just say this. Scripture uses the word predestination and predestine. Paulo To predestine or to predestinate. So if you don't mind me just tweaking what you said a bit, you do believe in predestination because it is a biblical term. It's just that you probably believe it differently than what I'm going to teach tonight, and, and that's okay. Uh, maybe I'll win you, but no. The, the main point the main point is whether we, we agree or disagree, there, there's certain implications of this that when I, that Scripture teaches it a certain way, and when, when we understand it a certain way, we, I believe we can appreciate the implications all the more. Okay? But, but so, just to be clear, sure. I
1: do not believe in predestination. I don't.
0: Okay, all right. So, what do you do with the word when it's found in Scripture, though? What's that? Well, the... Those were well, pre- Those whom he so, knew, he also predestined.
1: Pre- for a predestined, it's, it's one of those things, it's it's what we're talking about tonight, it's debatable. Um, okay. It's like certain other things in Scripture that are debatable, okay. um, but are not necessarily doctrinal. Um
0: Okay. Let let me just say, Paul is teaching this. Paul believes in Paul believes in predestination, and he's saying those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So Paul believes in predestination. It's going to depend on how we understand this. Okay. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Okay. I just don't believe that God would create people not for them to be saved purposefully. Okay, and so you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're looking at this right here, and you're asking the question, how can this be? Because it doesn't seem to make sense. Because, and, and, and we're going to see this more, but when we understand election in a certain way, and I'm going to say in a Calvinist way, it seems to undermine faith. And it seems to rob man of that free will because man seems to be this robot that God says, I've already chosen certain people and I apparently haven't chosen others, which I don't agree with that statement. But uh, we need to unwrap this a little bit more. We're just getting started here. So I'm going to have you hold on questions right now because we're just getting started here. We, I, I, I'm going I'm to say this very boldly again. I, I think scripture is, is clear. There is a doctrine. There is a teaching of predestination. The question is, how are we to understand it? Okay. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So predestination, however you're going to understand it, is rooted in foreknowledge. And my suggestion is that the word for the word knowledge, and foreknowledge is just with the pra in front of it. The word knowledge is understands two ways when it's Every single time in the Bible when the word knowledge is used in the verb form new for someone, it is never used in a way to mean events or facts. It is always used in a relational way. Now, I'm going to describe the Arminian view right now. Now that I've said what it is, okay? The Arminian view is that God chose certain people based on his foreknowledge that they would come to Christ so what God did so to speak was he looked down the tunnel of history he saw wow you know what Cole is going to believe in me so I'm going to choose him Okay. that type of foreknowledge though is factual it is not relational and so the challenge then would be, what do we do with the verb? It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And so the, the idea then is, if the Arminian perspective is right, then we would have to say that God's foreknowledge or God's predestination of us is truly rooted in our choice, our choosing Him. But whenever you read about this, and if you've done your homework and wrote reading in Romans nine, it always comes back not to what man has done, but it always comes back to what God has done. Always. And so we're, we would, in the in the or, or for the Armenian. That is a serious challenge then. Number one, scripture does say, does use the verb for new, and it's, it, it, the word know is used relationally. The word for no should be used relationally. So now from the Calvinist perspective, they understand it this way. They say that God, before the beginning of time, fell in love with a certain people. And out of that love, that mercy, that compassion, because we were completely lost, he foresaw this, we were completely lost in our sin, he then chose certain. The question that is in the back of our minds, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, is this. What about those that he apparently did not choose? I'm going to end with that point okay? So I'm going to allow me time to build to this and unwrap this, okay? Because this is not an easy doctrine to understand, okay? However we understand it, it must focus on God's grace. It must come back to God's grace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with man's decision in accordance with his pleasure and will that's its foundation God's pleasure and will I would just suggest that if predestination God choosing us is rooted in us choosing him it becomes a very weak teaching and I would suggest it does not highlight the the grace and glory of God I would suggest that the foundation is no longer God's pleasure and will but it is rooted in man not God. God is simply giving a rubber stamp to your faith. And and, I, I just, and I'm going to open the question here. I, I probably have only a minute to entertain the question maybe. But from that perspective, if God chose us based on the fact that we would choose him, what would be the purpose of that teaching? What, why would God even choose us? Okay, sure. We have the flood, which was mm-hmm. basically
1: uh, making a delta. You saying that's it. I'm done. I'm going to get rid of this creation, and I'm mm-hmm. starting with my chosen family, Noah's family, okay. who are righteous in his eyes, right? Okay. So we've started from, again, from Noah. Okay, the world has started anew from Noah and his seed. So, sorry, yeah, Noah and his seed. So, mm-hmm. if he was chosen by God and his family were chosen by God, what started the, the seed to be divided between the chosen and the, the unchosen, the foreknown and the and not foreknown? Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Well, that took place before the creation of the world, not after the flood. So, um, maybe I'm not understanding no, at, your question.
1: At the flood, God <laughs> chose Noah's family. Okay. Um. Uh, w-
0: L- let me. W- God cho- chose individuals. God chose peoples, not a right. group. Okay. But it was
1: definitely yeah. happened to be Noah as his family. Okay. Right. So, if they were if they were all chosen and we are now from that line directly, because all, all other humanity was wiped out. Well, mm-hmm. Why did God then start dividing between the chosen and the unchosen?
0: It really goes back to the question, I guess, why God chose in the first place. Right. Um, and, and I haven't come to the question about what some people use the term, the reprobate. That is those that appear not to be chosen. And I, and I, I don't use the word. I do not believe that God chose certain people for hell. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to get to that in Romans 9. And, and we need to understand that, okay? Um, but God did, the entire human race was destined to hell. And God, out of his grace, not because he thought Scott was this awesome God. Though well, in my opinion, I think he is. But Scott was lost. Yeah. He was lost in his sin. And Scott, I'm going to share a secret. Scott was an enemy of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. But God fell in love with Scott before the creation of the world and chose him. And this is what, this is, the, as you read through Ephesians chapter one, this is what the, the doctrine of predestination does for us. I do believe that the doctrine of predestination is for the lost to grasp and understand, not the unbeliever, Okay.
1: Wait, you you just said
0: that. What, what did I say? You for the lost. We,
1: we, we, I'm we sorry. The, the
0: doctrine of predestination is for the believer. It is for those who are in Christ. It is not for the lost. Okay. It is to bring comfort and encouragement to every believer in Jesus Christ. For this reason. Their salvation. Now I did not say faith. I said their salvation. Is rooted in God's grace from beginning to end. God initiated before the creation of the world. He then initiated at the cross. He then, and I'm, I, I'm, I still haven't been, been born yet. All my sins are still in the future, and but I'm going to grow up and be a, um, a, a rascal, uh, a, a defiant creation of God, his enemy. So he took initiative at the cross before I did anything, and then while I was alive, lost in my sin, he took initiative in his grace. Now we talked about prevenient grace, okay? that apart from God's initiation of grace, we would not even be able to believe, okay now if you didn't if you did not listen to that teaching. Um, I'm going to encourage you to go back, listen to it. But all I can say is, when when I talk about my salvation, it is fully and completely rooted in God's grace. And in this concept that he chose me. Whether I completely understand that or not, and I don't, and my suggestion is no one truly does. But I understand enough to say, wow. God loved me that much. Now, that does not answer the question, what about this lost person who ends up going to hell? Okay? And I'm going to come to that. But there is this right here that that question falls into that we just have to be able to allow that mystery to remain. Okay? Because the Bible does not ask that question, and it does not answer that question, okay? Because the doctrine of predestination or election is for those who believe. And you've heard me say this before, D.L. Moody. I I, I personally think that as he stands, as he stood back and kind of summarized it, he captured it well when he said, as as we as believers in Jesus Christ enter the The pearly gates, above it it says, enter all who may. And as we enter in and go through and look back, it says predestined from the foundations of the earth. Okay? All right, Matt, see, that makes sense. It is not for me as an unbeliever to wrestle with, well, has God chosen me or not? Now, is there some Calvinists that would disagree with that statement? That's fine. But it is not for the lost to contemplate that. For what reason? They're going to they're gonna come to this right here and do what? I just, I'll just reject God. You'll reject the cross. You'll reject what God's, God's initiation to extend his grace and his love to you. You're just going to reject that? Okay, you're going to reject God because you don't understand hell? You're going to reject God because you don't understand how Jesus can be both God and man? You're going to reject God because you don't understand the Bible? you don't understand God that you can't crawl into the infinite mind and understand this right here that so what I'm saying is we need to be careful this is for you to contemplate the depth the beauty and the riches of God's grace mm-hmm. that as an enemy he chose me and, and I would even say this he had to choose me okay And that's going to rub some of us the wrong way because we're wanting to ask this other question, well, what about the lost? What about the lost? What about the lost? They're going to go to hell, not because they were not chosen, but because of their sin. I'm going to, a little spoiler. Anyway, we'll get to that in Romans 9. Okay, did you have a question? Um, If
1: if people are predestined
0: um, from the fourth time, then why do we need to evangelize? Great question. Why do we need to evangelize if, there are certain people who are chosen and certain people who are not, okay? And it's because the Bible tells us to, all right? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, that is an overly simplistic answer, and I don't mean it right, to sound that way. I was joking, actually. But the truth is, how are they going to come to faith apart from evangelism? Romans 10 says, how will they believe if no one is... I'm sorry? But predestination doesn't save us. Right. Believing in the gospel saves right. us. Okay. Right, to so,
1: ask the question. But then that's not a decision to believe in it. Have...
0: Yes, it is a decision. Right. I
1: thought you were saying
0: that we didn't have a decision. No, 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 no. The misunderstanding is that we do not have a decision. Oh, it is, I'm going, to say, I'm going to say it this way, and it is going to sound so contradictory, and I need to get into the three points right here uh, before we run out of time, okay? Very, very crucial three points that's going to help us realize, stepping back, wow, I have to realize there is so much that I truly do not know. How can I judge God? How can I even look at this teaching in Scripture and say, because it makes no sense, I'm going to reject it, Okay? There is so much in the mind of God here, and I'm only going to hint at a few things, okay, to help us understand this a little bit more, all right? Um, It is 100% God's election and 100% man's faith that we are saved. You cannot emphasize election to the point where faith becomes... A footnote. Um, that is hyper-Calvinism. It is not Calvinism, by the um, In fact, what I just said, I heard from a Calvinist teacher. 100% God and 100% man. It's just that as we are beginning to discuss it, it seems as if it's 100% God and 0% man. And that man is a robot. And all I am going to say is in view of God's sovereignty in this and his need to choose us, we are still fully held responsible for rejecting Jesus Christ. Okay? Question, comment?
1: Yeah, I, I understand Like a lot of people in this room have a deeper understanding of this than I do. I don't understand this really well. I mean, do you think maybe we could hold off on questions that aren't just clarifying what you're saying until you get through your spiel? So that I sounds
0: think- like a good idea because I've got about... 15 to 20 minutes to to cover the next half of my message here. I felt like I was
1: getting it, but then we got to cut
0: off. No, but these are good questions. They really are. They really are. What I'm about to say might help you some, okay? And what I'm going to tell you is this. When we look at this concept of election and faith, that is what God does, what we do, there is this discrepancy, okay? It doesn't seem to make sense. And I'm going to, that's why, and even a Calvinist, if he's humble enough, will admit that. All right? Number one, I want us to look at this concept of of faith. But to do that, there are six, six things, at least six things, that I'm going to call the destination of predestination. All right? That is... What are we predestined for? What are we chosen for or unto? All right? I need you to write fast. We've already come across a couple of them. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. We were predestined With a purpose in mind. Without us, our purpose. And that was so that Sandra would be conformed to the likeness of his son Jesus. The father chose Sandra. And the purpose of that choosing was that Sandra would look just like Jesus. Okay? Acts 13.48. Those who were appointed... Unto eternal life believed. This says that they were appointed not to believe, but they were appointed to gain eternal life. Okay? And that eternal life is something that happens here in part and fully in the age to come. Okay? It says in Ephesians 1.4 that we read that he chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. And again, it doesn't say that he chose us to believe. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 1.5, the very next verse, we have been in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So I have been adopted. Because he predestined me. To this. This is what I've been predestined for. And again. It doesn't say he predestined us to believe. You're seeing a theme here I think. Second Thessalonians 2.13. It says that. We have been chosen. To be saved. Through faith doesn't say we were chosen to believe. We were chosen to be saved, to experience salvation. Number six, 1 Peter 1, 2. We read about that. We have been elect, or NIV supplies the word chosen there, um, according to his foreknowledge, unto obedience. um, Wait a second. One, two. Yes, unto obedience. I'm, I'm getting some uh, of the things mixed in mind there. So number six is that we have been chosen unto obedience. Here is personally where I think most Calvinists make a mistake. They teach that we have been elect to believe. We have been elect unto faith. The only problem is there's not one scripture verse that teaches that in the Bible. Now, I don't know if you're a Calvinist here, if you were aware of that. I grew up, when I, when I heard the teaching of Calvinism, that's what I was taught. But as I began to search Calvinism and try and refine, what do I really believe now? Um, I realized there is no verse that says that we were chosen or elect or predestined unto faith. We were elect or chosen or predestined unto the result of faith. Now is that just an incidental? Am I being overly picky here? Here is what we need to. Okay. All right, That, that by the way is number one. This idea that the Bible doesn't say that we were predestined to believe. Okay? It would seem that that would be the case. It's just that the Bible never says that. And I, we need to be fair. This is a complicated teaching. This is a teaching wrapped in mystery. Whenever you approach a mystery, whenever you're trying to solve this gigantic puzzle, never make assumptions. Ever, ever. <laughs> to say that we've been predestined unto faith is an assumption. Maybe a logical assumption. But we're, we're, we're talking about something w- within this that we do not understand. So I'm going to throw out the caution. Don't say that. Don't say that we have been elect or chosen or predestined unto faith because the Bible doesn't say that. All right? Now, that's just a word of caution. All right? Number two. Let's I want us to look at this phrase in Ephesians 1.4. It says, He chose us In him. I'm going to suggest that this concept of being in Christ is this arena of faith. It's it's not only faith, but it is, therefore, every, well, it's, it's initiated by faith. What flows from being in him are, is the inheritance and the blessings that's being raised with Christ, etc., etc. Okay? So, I'm going to write it this way. Election and faith. The Calvinist will say, generally speaking, I'm sure that there are many that, that would not say this, I'm sure there are many that would say, as I'm describing it now, we are not predestined unto faith. We are predestined unto the results or the, or, or the, the benefits and the blessings uh, and the inheritance that we have through faith. They would say election produces faith. They would then understand he chose us in him. What does that mean? He chose us in him. And I want you to think about The difficulty of understanding that phrase right there. He chose us in him. So what many people do is they'll supply, okay, he chose us to be in him. That is this right here. And we're wanting to see this cause and effect. And I'm just going to throw this out here. There is no cause and effect here. Now, Maybe you've never heard it from that perspective before, and I want you to think about that. The scriptures do not teach this. That he chose us to be in Him. If that's the case, then why does it say? If he, if it says He chose us to be in Him, why does it continue on to be conformed to the? To, to um, I'm sorry. What does it say? I just. I'm sorry. This is Ephesians one. Yes, Ephesians one four. Um, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. See, that's the the effect of being chosen. Being chosen, the effect is not to be in him. It is to be holy and blameless. Okay? So I'm going to suggest this can't be the filler. We cannot use this phrase to bring out this sense of cause and effect. That's not what this means. and, And the Arminian, however, wants to see it this way. Because you believed, God chose you. So their, our faith caused God to elect us. And I'm going to say that that's not biblical either. In essence, their filler is, He chose us because we will be in Him. Or He chose us based on us being in Him. Or whatever filler that you want to demonstrate cause and effect. And I'm going to suggest that, that that's not a biblical understanding. Romans chapter 9. Sorry, Mike,
1: what was the filler for the
0: Arminian? Um. Because, we're in him.
1: because we are in him.
0: God, He chose us, that is, God chose us. And then the Calvinists would interpret it to be in him. And whatever we put in here. I'm going to suggest it cannot demonstrate cause and effect. Okay, I hope that doesn't lose you here. Because within this Calvinist Arminian, there is this tendency to want to show cause and effect. And I'm going to suggest it is not there. It is not there. Um, Romans 9. Concerning the Arminian view of faith causing this is still... Number two. Number two, one of your. Yeah. It says in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What is it? Now, forgive me if I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But if you were to backtrack this pronoun, it would go back to God's love or out of his love, he elected us. It is his election. We see that in verse 12. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. He's talking about Jacob and Esau, the fact that he chose one over the other, and It's rooted in his love and his compassion and his mercy. So Paul says it this way, it, that is God's election, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. In other words, faith or or anything good or valuable in us, that is not why God chose us. That's not the foundation for God's election. It depends upon one thing. Not something about us or that we're going to do. It's dependent upon God's mercy. God's compassion. Okay, That's what it's rooted in. All right. Thirdly, let me just make sure that I have... Okay, let, let's go back to Ephesians 1. We're going to look for this filler. How can we do that? It's not, honestly, it's not too hard to get a general understanding of what should be in here. And I'm not going to say it's something missing as if Paul just missed it. It's just that in the, in the mind of Paul and in the writing of Greek, when you translate it, there, there's just no need to put something here. But in our under, limited understanding in our English language, we need something because he chose us in him. Does that mean that God stepped into Jesus and chose us? Well, no. I mean, how are we to understand this? Do you understand the difficulty of, understand, of getting this? So I want us to look at two verses just very quickly. Number one, chapter one, verse three, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let me pare that down for you because Paul uses a lot of, in accordance with... Um, in from a lot of prepositions, and I'm gonna pair it, I'm gonna get rid of the prepositions except in him, and I'm gonna pare it down. He he instead of chose us, it says, He blessed us in him. Did he bless us because we are in him? He blessed us because we are in him. Um To to be in him, we do have this inheritance, so that might possibly work. I'm going to suggest, though, in in other ways in which this phrasing is used, it doesn't. But we can't say he, um, he blessed us to be in him. That doesn't make sense. The cause and effect definitely could not be blessing causes us to be in him okay that's not his purpose because the purpose is that by being in by being in Christ there is all of these spiritual blessings that I have because I am in Christ I am in faith in Christ okay well the Arminian seems to be leaning in the right direction with that one but let me suggest this chapter 2 verse 6 and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus Let me pare that down. He's talking about raising us up and seating us with him. Okay? So those are the two verbs. Raising up and seating. I'm just going to focus on the first one if you don't mind because we need to be able to see how it fits in this. So he raised up us in him. Does that mean that he raised us up to be in him or he raised us up Because we will be in him. Truly none of those really make sense. Now I I apologize. I'm not going to get into it any more than this. And I'm just going to leave that for you to study. But I am going to suggest that there is no cause and effect here. That when God elects. He doesn't elect unto faith. But what follows faith. And therefore when we think of election. We think of election and faith. Paired together. But our faith and anything about us um, eventually is rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in God's grace. Okay?
1: Scott? Could, that, could it be where we adopted? Could that be
0: what? I'm sorry, what is being chosen in him? In the brackets. God chose us to be adopted in him?
1: No, without anything there, just be that what he's talking about is that it's our adoption into Christ, into the family of Christ.
0: Uh, I'm not going to deny that, but our adoption is the result of us, or our adoption is on this side, it's not on this side. I don't think we can sum all of this up by saying he adopted us because there's a choosing that's involved here. Let let me just leave it at this, okay? We need to realize that God's election does not contravene or, or downplay faith. It is in connection with it, okay? It is in connection with it. There is the tendency within Calvinism to say that God chose us to believe. It's just that Scripture doesn't say that. All right? My believing, though, in him is fully rooted in his grace. Okay? It's fully rooted in his grace. Let me just share one last you. This is both a biblical teaching and a scientific teaching, and it has to do with the concept of time. In the beginning, time. God created the heavens, which at the, at the moment was empty. It was space. And the earth, matter. Time, space, and matter. Scientists today say that our existence is comprised of time, space, and matter. God created time. As a matter of fact, time, if you were to look at Einstein's theory of relativity, time can actually speed up or slow down relative to your position, relative to whether you are the one approaching the speed of light or observing something or someone approaching the speed of light. As you approach the speed of tick technically, if you were going the speed of light, which is scientifically impossible, but if you did, time would stand still, okay? Not for me, observing this, it would continue to march on. So I would step into this time machine, if you will, go the speed of light, and step out. And no time will have passed for me. It's as if I stepped in and stepped out. And the entire world would have marched on perhaps thousands, if not millions of years. Now they have tested this, not to that extent. That's why I say approaching the speed of light. But here, the, my point is very simply this. Time is dependent, according to Einstein's theory, it is dependent upon velocity. Is that correct? It changes. It's relative. My point then is this. God created time. If God created time, he is not influenced or impacted by time. He is separate from his creation and therefore separate from time. And yet this God that is separate from time did something that was a part of time. He foreknew. He predestined. Now, it is beyond us to comprehend what it is like To exist, live outside of time. God chooses to live or exist in time. He did that through Jesus. If He were to to submit Himself in some other way to this creation of time, okay. But when God chose us, He did so outside of time, He did so before the creation of anything. Time did not exist. And God did something that was time-bound. Now, right now, your mind is probably, this does not make sense. And here is why. Because we are time-bound. We have no clue what it is like to live outside of time. How does time even relate to God? It's like asking a blind man who has never seen the color red, describe for me what the color red looks like, I have no clue, and so here we are. We are, discuss- well, I don't, I, okay. we are discussing this discrepancy, and this discrepancy has everything to do with time. For 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 us, time is what makes every, what keeps everything from happening at once. Okay, all right. Um, I don't know if that's the way it is for God. He's outside of time. I have no clue what it is like to be outside of time. But I know that God exists outside of time. And the words that he has chosen are predestined and foreknowledge. And these are time-bound words. And so we think of them in this little concept of time that we exist in. And our conclusion is... It's absolutely impossible for man to be held responsible for not believing in Jesus if God, before he created the world, didn't choose him. It's just not fair. That whole idea is wrapped in our limited understanding of time. Now, of course, I can't explain this discrepancy based on that because it's involved in this idea of time that nobody here... Sorry, but even Brian Webb does not fully understand. We are just now... How many of you watched the movie Interstellar? Okay, time is related to gravity. Did you know this? I mean, time is, is an incredibly complex... God's creation is incredibly complex. Time is incredibly complex for me to stand back and say... God, you are unjust for choosing anybody before the creation of the world. Before, that's a time-bound word. Here we are. It's it's as if a five-year-old, and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody in this room by saying this. I I am cautioning us. Don't be like the five-year-old that has been reading English for two years and reads Einstein's theory of relativity and says it does not make sense this is stupid it cannot be all right let's make sure number 1 that our understanding of foreknowledge and predestination election choosing all of these sounds all of these concepts are biblically based they highlight the grace and the love and the compassion of god and that if we, if, if we understand them biblically, that we then don't step back and say, I'm sorry, this just doesn't make sense, so it can't be. We have to be careful. That is what the world will do. But that is not what we, if we don't understand hell, okay, I'll, I'll admit to you, I don't understand hell. I don't understand the holiness of God, and therefore I do not fully understand the wrath of God, And I therefore do not understand the judgment of God fully, so I will never fully understand the concept of hell. But I'm going to do my best. There is certain things about it that I can understand. And I will be content with that. So, we cannot dismiss the doctrine of election because we don't see how it fits in Mm -hmm. with faith. We can't do that. Now I gave you three things, just as far as to kind of tantalize us and and make us think that perhaps there is more to this concept of election and faith than what we are aware of, and therefore let's be very careful and withhold judgment. Romans nine, and I need to that, that says ten of, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm already past my time, but
1: not quarter to ten, ten to nine.
0: Yes. Tenner. Mike,
1: maybe
0: time will slow down. I'm sorry. Maybe time will slow down. All right. If if we're going near the speed of light, that just might happen. Romans chapter nine, and I'm only going to touch on this. And if truly, if I had more time, I would. And I realize I am not leaving the time for questions that I wanted, but it does say in verse 22, "What if God?" Choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? In the second one, who is the subject of preparation? Preparation. Who did the preparing? God. Okay. God prepared us in advance for glory. This again is rooted in his election. Okay. Who is the subject of the first word for prepared in verse 22 prepared for destruction? Who did the preparation there? OK, it's just that my Bible doesn't say that if, if you say God, it's because you're assuming it based on the next verse. And I'm going to suggest there is no subject here. It does not say that God prepared. If God did not prepare us for destruction, who or what did? OK, I'm not going to blame it on Satan. Though he had a part in it, but our sin did. Our sin has prepared us for destruction. We were by nature objects of wrath. We were born into this sin and God's wrath. And it's only as he rescues us from that, that he now sets us on the pathway to glory. Glory. This, though, is talking about kind of crawling into the mind of God before creation, and he chose us and therefore prepared us certain for glory. But it doesn't say that he prepared certain for destruction. I realize that was Calvin's conclusion. He believed God was doing the preparing here. I've run across very many Calvinists that disagree with that, including myself. I'm not a Calvinist, but I lean very strongly. In, in this teaching of predestination in that way. And I, I do not see that God did the preparation here. Calvin did believe in double predestination. He chose some for uh, glory and chose some for hell. I don't see the scripture teaching that. I don't see this verse teaching that. Everyone was bound for hell, and God chose some and to rescue them and chose them unto eternal life, unto salvation. Elect unto predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be holy and blameless in his son. Okay. Um, if it requires a long answer, I may not be able to entertain the question. i, I, I
1: was just. There's a couple. I mean, don't I'll talk to you first.
0: Okay. All right. Great. It's a, it does say later on,
1: he's quoting Hosea, he says, I will call those of my people who are not my people. Th-
0: this is true which would be the Gentiles. And that calling is not the calling that took place before the creation of the world. That calling took place when, for example, Scott, you as a Gentile heard the voice of the Spirit convicting you of your sin, calling you and drawing you to Jesus. And so you were not a people of God, a person of God. And yet God loved you, lavished you with his grace and love and rescued you. Okay.
1: Mike, I actually did have something very quick. This is quick. This okay. is a different thing. I, I'm just seeing, as far as hermeneutically, as we're exegeting this passage, that 21, is he not still further expositing that by continuing to elaborate on the same principle? Because <clears throat> he's talking about a potter who creates from the same lump one for honor and one for dishonor. So okay. how does that... This, out of that perforation there okay, also we can
0: still a- understand it that God created all and all were in essence um, destined to become pottery of uh, for common use but out of that that still he's created that but still out of that he chose some for But so he the- made from one month, one for
1: honor and
0: Okay, but it,
1: is that not maybe more of an illustration about an choosing to live a sinful life and man choosing to live a righteous life in all of Christ? As yeah, right. yeah.
0: so, I'm sorry, <laughs> is, you ask that question one more time. Is
1: that not more of an illustration of the, the Potter being humans and the pottery that's garbage? pottery. is made to, to good use people who do accept Christ and who go and live righteous life. Is mm-hmm. that not?
0: Are, are, are you saying that the, the pottery that's created for no use are the Christians? Are the people use? who accept
1: Christ? Yes. You're not mm-hmm. that God's just saying there's this great pottery I've made, there's this garbage I've made. It's uh, what you're saying. The good pottery is just the pottery that's accepted Christ.
0: But the potter is God. Right? The potter but
1: the is potter is right. right. and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. pottery is God's creation. Yes. I think it's really hard to take those two passages without seeing the overarching the principle in the entire chapter. It's difficult. Because you have to even go back to verse 20 where he's talking about point. And he's talking mm-hmm. about those who are he's presupposing the opposition or objection towards the sovereignty of God in point. I think it is difficult to get and say, well, the preparation there is not God. It's themselves. And in the latter verse, God's preparing when Paul is not breaking that bond.
0: Okay. I, I'm going to suggest that we, it does not say here in this verse that God chose or elect the those who would, what's called to reprobate, those who would not believe in Jesus for hell. But them going to hell in verse 22, it says that that demonstrates his wrath and his power. Okay? It, and I'm not going... The idea that God loved Jacob and hated Esau very simply means that concept of hate does not mean hate-hate as much as it means to love less, okay? And, and you can see this as it's used, that phrase to hate and love as it's used with Rachel and Leah. Um, so I, I apologize, I, I can't get into it any more than that. I think we're making a mistake, though, if we, if, and I believe we're reading into that verse to say, therefore, God did elect certain unto hell. He, here's the bottom line. All of this, what we're, what we're talking about here, needs to highlight the absolute sovereignty and grace of God. I personally find it difficult if I'm going to say that God chose me And that's supposed to highlight his grace, but he did it based on one thing. Mike Curtis was going to believe in him. The focus now shifts, the spotlight shifts on my faith. Okay, And the spotlight needs to fall on God's grace and God's initiation. And because we don't understand this concept of time and how before the creation of world, God could do something like this. I just simply have to step back and plead ignorance, and I'm okay with that. But as long as I'm being fair with every single passage in Scripture, and then I say, but the Bible never says that we were predestined to believe, and therefore election and faith, I'm suggesting, are interconnected, interrelated. He chose us in view of us being in him. He blessed us in view of us being in Him. He raised us up in view of us being in Him. Okay? And there is a connection here. And so the bottom line needs to be this that God has chosen you and He pursued you with His grace. And you came into a full saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you have experienced now, therefore, all of these blessings. Because this is what he chose you to. Okay? And that highlights God's grace. Okay? Now, however we end up understanding this teaching, the bottom line is let's be faithful to what scripture teaches. Let's make sure that we walk away with what... The main point scripture says is, and that is God's grace, love, mercy, compassion, and not me. Okay. He initiated and he rescued me. Okay. Awesome. I realize that there are still probably unanswered questions because I have questions that aren't answered according to scripture. I have questions about hell and questions about demonology And when I get into heaven, I'm going to finally understand it all. And where my knowledge is limited, and I'll know fully as I'm fully known, I will grow in that, and maybe we'll understand this whole concept of predestination. All right, Let me close in prayer. Father, you are a gracious and compassionate and loving God that when I was your enemy, even before you created anything, You chose me. You fell in love with me. Nothing of myself. No value in me. Nothing that I was going to do. No great thing that I was going to accomplish. That's not why you chose me. But simply to bring glory and honor to yourself. And so in view of that and only that, I say, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you chose me. Thank you that... You have called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. And you've transformed me. All because you took the initiative. Thank you for this, God. In Jesus' name.